I invite you to take your Bibles with me this morning and make your way, surprise of all surprises, to Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 6 this morning. Titled this message, Leaving Spiritual Neverland, part 2. So part 1 was two weeks ago, we were in chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, and uh, this is really the second part of... Uh, that sermon, they're connected kind of as a hinge. And uh, this is an interjection in the middle of what the author is saying. And uh, as we get started this morning, let's just read our passage uh, together. Chapter 5, we'll begin in verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, that is the divine son, the son of God, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of of Melchizedek. So we're in the middle of a sermon. We're hearing that message about Jesus, the Melchizedekian high priest. And then a digression, verse 11. About this, about this reality of Jesus as the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Chapter 5, verse 11, the author has to interrupt his flow of thought in the sermon for a digression. I needs to address an issue that he's kind of been alluding to for a while. And so if you've been with us from back in Hebrews chapter 1, we find that often this author begins to say, hey, I'm concerned that you're beginning to be hard-hearted. Be careful not to let your heart grow hard toward the voice of God. All right? Pay close attention to the word as you hear it delivered. Uh, he keeps exhorting them to, to pay attention, but so far he's, he's really giving a lot of prescriptions like the doctor who's prescribing you something and it hasn't really told you what the underlying issue is. And so last time we discussed this, he began for the first time uh, in this sermon to identify the issue. And the issue we saw last time was a lack of spiritual maturity uh, in verses uh, 12, or really 11 through 14, he begins to expose their lack of spiritual maturity. And so this is now really the, uh, the precursor to what next week will be one of the strongest warning passages in all of Scripture. Uh, really one of the most difficult challenges to uh, interpret and apply concerning a warning passage actually comes in Hebrews 6. So 
Um, in seminary, they would assign what are known as problem passages, and they're not exactly problem passages in the sense that they're part of God's revelation. They're a problem in terms of how difficult they are to interpret and apply. And so this text, Hebrews 6, and the warning that will begin in verse 4 was considered a problem passage, a challenging passage to apply. And so what we're doing this week really is <clears throat> the author is, is beginning to explain why this warning is necessary and it has to do with the lack of spiritual maturity that he's seeing in God's people. And so what I would encourage you in as you um, sit under, as you hear a warning passage in Scripture, is not to say to yourself, because I'm a Christian, this warning doesn't apply to me. That's a wrong way of thinking. Uh, that would be a, evidencing a dull hearing, actually, to think in that way. To say automatically I'm going to disqualify a certain truth from speaking to my life, however God intends it, based upon how I personally view myself. And so rather what we're to do is we're to come to a warning passage and we're to just simply let the Lord speak. And if it is comforting and affirming, which I pray it will be, then, then praise God. And if it is alarming and distressing, then let the word of God do its work. That you might actually find true salvation if you don't possess it. And so a warning passage in the life of a believer is to, to wake us up and to spur us on to be sensitive and aware to the Lord. To an unbeliever who thinks they're saved, a warning passage is designed to actually expose your true spiritual condition that you might repent and believe and trust Christ and be saved. And so I would just encourage you to not qualify God's word, but simply let it speak. And you think about <clears throat> assurance of salvation. How is it that you know that you're a Christian? How is it that you know that you're saved? Uh, culturally, one of the ways we're conditioned to think is to think back to a date. Right? September 12, 2003, I remember right where I was, and that was when I became a Christian. That's really not in Scripture as a way of thinking about whether or not you're in Christ. Right? The way the Scriptures would teach us to think about being in Christ is always to examine your life today and say, do I see the evidence of God having worked within me, that his spirit is now at work within me, and that is the basis for which I would connect my assurance of salvation, my confidence. Think about it this way, in the parable of the soils that we just read, you have uh, three soils that all are demonstrating some response to that word of the gospel. There's some receptivity, there's some initial growth, there's some apparent fruit that's being produced as that gospel seed goes in, Yet one of them vaporizes when trials come, one of them gets choked out, and only one of them is falling on good soil and growing. And so even being able to, out of those three soils, three of them would have been able to point back to a moment when that gospel seed went into the soil of their heart and began to bear fruit. They would have had a salvation experience, a date on a card that they first became born again when they tasted of spiritual things. And yet as time bore on, what was revealed was that initial growth was actually not rooted in good soil. It wasn't regeneration. It wasn't new birth. It was simply a temporary positive response to the gospel. And so today, the testing point that this author is after is the issue of spiritual growth. Okay, this is where we were at, if you remember, two weeks ago. We said that chapter 5 verses 11 through 14 is to cause you and me to ask ourselves this question. Am I growing and maturing in the faith. Right now, am I growing and maturing in the faith? 
How I'd ask you to think about it is, is this way. I would say take your spiritual life today and look back 12 months, look back 24 months, look back five years and ask yourself, what is the trajectory of my spiritual condition over the past five years, over the past two years, even over the past year? Some of you, if you are honest, would say, Praise God. For God's glory, I am growing. It's by His grace alone. I certainly see the presence of sin in my life, but I see an evidence of the power of God at work within me, and that is for His praise and His glory. I've been growing in obedience. I've been growing in discernment. I've been growing in my appetite for truth. I've been growing in my love for Christ and for others. I've been growing in my knowledge of the scriptures and my application of the scriptures and I'm seeing new fruit of personal holiness and deeper convictions and by God's grace, not to my glory but to his glory alone, the past year has been a year of spiritual growth for me. Some of you might hear that question and find it actually a little bit uncomfortable. Say, you know what, if if you ask me how my spiritual condition has been over the past year, it's kind of annoying. It's, it's irking me a little bit that you, would, that you would even suggest that question. Now, I don't really care to admit it, but if I'm honest, in fact, over the past year, I'm, I'm finding that the Word of God is less exciting to me. Instead of a delight, obedience has become more of a drudgery. It's a duty. I come to church because I know I'm supposed to do it. I don't really long to be with God's people. The the appetite I've had for fellowship has begun to diminish. And frankly, all this talk about faith and faithfulness in Hebrews is kind of just getting a little bit old. In fact, when you talk about progress and striving and growing, it seems not only unnecessary, but maybe even a little bit legalistic to me. That rubs me the wrong way. Maybe as you sit here, you'd say, you know, I don't really... I think I fit into either one of those categories. My spiritual life over the past year has just kind of been flatlined, pretty constant. Nothing to report on. No major scandals. No significant acts of unbelief. No apostasy. But at the same time, I'm, I'm not really learning any new things. I'm not really developing in my love for Christ. I'm basically in the same spiritual spot that I was a year ago. Everything's kind of the status quo. Nothing new to report on. No big changes say that that neutral category is one that we all can understand and relate to, and yet it's not a a category given by the author of Hebrews. See, the way that the author of Hebrews is looking out at this congregation is he's saying that if the Spirit of God is in you, you are to be growing, and if you're not growing, that is a cause for concern. In other words, being spiritually neutral is not nothing. That would be a cause for spiritual concern. And so my prayer is that God's word would minister to you and to me this morning. I've been asking the Spirit of God to confirm among every blood-bought believer here that you belong to Christ and to bring you the comfort of God's word. And if you are not in Christ, to unsettle whatever false assurance you may have. This section is about spiritual maturity. It's about growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the theme of this passage, if you want it in one sentence, is you must press on to maturity, banking on God's enablement. 
You must press on to maturity, banking on God's enablement. This is not a sermon about self-effort, but it is going to require something of you. Our outline for the text this morning is beloved. That's the loved ones of God. Beloved, spiritual maturity is first your expected trajectory. In other words, it's, it's what's supposed to happen in the Christian life. It's normal. It's an ought to. Secondly, your personal responsibility. Spiritual maturity is given to you as your personal responsibility by God. It's actually no one else's job to strive to grow. And then thirdly, and very importantly, as what we'd come to expect in the pattern of Scripture, you're going to see your natural inability. The fact that as much as you're called and given the responsibility to grow, you actually cannot do it apart from divine intervention. Beloved, spiritual maturity is first your expected trajectory. I want to go back and develop this a little bit from where we were two weeks ago. This author has begun to speak strongly to these hearers. And he's saying, I want to tell you about Jesus. I want to tell you about his ministry. And the problem is I can't because you guys are not able to, to discern the truth. You become dull in your hearing. Literally, the idea in the original there is, is you, you have um, unbelieving, lazy ears. Okay, So when you say, what does it mean to be dull of hearing, when you hear the word of God, it means that you hear the word of God and you're unaffected by it. You hear the word of God and you're not responding to it. It's just kind of meh. You can hear it, you can appreciate it. But as far as actually building and changing something within you, you're largely unresponsive. Another way of describing it is dole of hearing is, is unbelief. So it's a lack of faith. And, and over and over in Hebrews chapter 3, a lack of faith and disobedience are correlated. So you could say if you hear the truth and you don't obey the truth, you're dull of hearing. To hear and not obey, to hear and not believe, is to be dull of hearing. And the author's concern is, They've regressed. Look at that there in verse 11. About this we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. You're in spiritual regression mode. You've backslidden, if you will. You used to be sensitive to the truth. You used to be hearing the voice of Christ and responding. And now you're in a spot where you've shrunk back from that. You've atrophied. It's a sign of regression. To have a lack of appetite. So we see first a a lack of appetite in verse 11. That was one of the signs of spiritual immaturity. The next one is a lack of understanding. Verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again. The basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. This is absolutely brutal. There's a little bit of sarcasm. I mean, you can just kind of hear it and you get it. If you think about babies, babies are cute when? When they're babies. That's, that's the only time it's cute to be a baby. Right, can you imagine if we had a, a seating section in the church for adults who want to act like babies? We said this is going to be the baby section. You can cry. You can bring your rattle. You're allowed to crawl in and talk baby talk. 
We expect you to still nurse. You can have a bottle and a pacifier, but no table food. It's the section for the adults who want to act like babies. It would be absurd. So the author is saying, you guys were starting out really well. You were growing and maturing in the faith, and now I feel like we're back in spiritual baby land. There's a, a spiritual problem here, a concern. The idea that you ought to be teachers, as we said, is not that you ought to have a formal teaching role in the church, but the idea that by now you should be a disciple-making disciple. You've been in Christ long enough that you need to be making disciples, and you're not doing that. You're not passing on the faith. You've been in Christ enough years that, that you should be able to come to God's people and explain the basics of sanctification, the basics of theology, how one can know God and grow in Him. And if you look at the fruit of your life, there's no one who you've taught. My friends, that's a tragedy. It's a tragedy when there's folks who've been in Christ a long time and there are not those whom they have taught. The whole purpose that God saved you in part is to make disciples that you would be active in that. And so the author is saying, I'm concerned because you should be teaching by now and you're not. You ought. He's saying it's in an appropriate situation. And the author is assuming that that they are now accountable for their immaturity. And so we see that if you're spiritually immature, uh, you can diagnose that by a lack of appetite for truth, a lack of understanding and, and maturity in the truth, and then finally, a lack of discernment in verse 14. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to discern good from evil. What he's saying here is just measure. Are you able to discern error? Or are you like the, the Lego guy and whatever thing someone says in Christianity, you just think it's awesome. Everything is awesome. Everything is good. The Bible says that there's discernment that comes through the practice of the truth. What is he talking about? Well, when you encounter a situation in life and you say, I don't know how to handle it, what does God's word say? And you learn what it says and you apply it. You're beginning to exercise discernment, right? And then you obey and you act on that and then you encounter another situation. Well, what does God say about it? I want to learn. I see what he says about it. I submit myself to it. What happens? I continue to grow in discernment. And so the pattern for growing in discernment is to apply God's truth to the issues of life and submit to it as you understand what he says. You lack discernment and you lose discernment as you navigate life according to your own understanding. So I'd ask, is your discernment growing? I hope so. I don't know if you ever have this experience. You, you reread a book that you read 10 years ago that you thought was so awesome at the time and you reread it and you think, whew, man, I believe that stuff. I didn't spot all the error in that. Man, I used to think that that was faithful preaching. I used to think that that was a reliable Bible study teacher. I used to say these things to my family or my kids. I used to live this way morally and now the truth of God has come and it has begun to shape my discernment and cultivate new ways of thinking. My friends, regression is problematic spiritually. See, if you don't see spiritual growth in your life, it's a concern because it's expected. The author's concerned because he's expecting growth and he's not seeing the evidence of it among some of these people. And the reason why the Bible teaches something is wrong, desperately wrong for a Christian who's not growing, is because if you are in Christ, you're attached to the vine. 
And the vine produces life. The vine produces fruit. The vine is the source of spiritual vitality. And so if you're connected to the vine, in one sense, you cannot help but grow spiritually. Think about it. Physically, we understand this. Right? As a child, every year, you go to your annual checkup at the doctor. And what's normal and expected is a pattern of growth. And I did that backwards. It's like this. The growth chart for all of you. The mirror reflection. That would be the growth chart, right? Kind of starts out really high and then it peters out over time. So that's what you would expect. In fact, it's my wife's favorite part of taking the kids to the doctor is finding out their latest stats and how this percentile compared to last year's percentile and how it compared to the other kids and how it compared to me and her and on and on and on. A little bit of embellishment there. But the idea of, right, I'm expecting that there's a growth chart and I'm really interested that that normal trajectory and pattern is taking place. And in fact, for one of our children, they were off the growth chart on the small side, so actually falling off the chart. And what happened? Doctor said, we're booking an appointment. You need to get up to the children's hospital because we have a major concern. When we don't see the growth we're expecting, it might be a big problem. Might be nothing, but it's a cause for concern. See, that's what the author is saying here. He's not saying, I don't think any of you are Christians. He's actually going to say in a little bit, I'm actually confident that all the things I'm saying here aren't true of all of you. But a lack of growth is a concern. You've got to take it seriously. You've got to find out. You need, to go to this, you need to go to the children's hospital. You need to get the test run to find out, is this, is this just something, a little blip? Or is this actually a significant spiritual problem? See, babies are supposed to go grow. Children are supposed to grow. And God's people are supposed to grow. And so a Christian who's not growing could be either a believer who's stuck in a season of immaturity, that can happen, or perhaps an unbeliever who's not actually saved and simply thinks that they are. Tom Schreiner writes, there's no idea here that we can be confident of salvation of those who remain spiritual infants for years and years. There's no idea here that we can be confident of salvation of those who remain spiritual infants for years and years. The readers, because of their infancy, are slipping toward apostasy. Those who are spiritual infants can't remain where they are. They will either go forward or fall away and be destroyed forever. Hence, the warning that follows is urgent since death and life are at stake. See, I want you to to get this. The reason why regression is so concerning is because you have no way of knowing ahead of time whether it's just a season or whether it's going to be apostasy. Do you understand that's his concern? In other words, as, as you're drifting away from the Lord, at what point did you drift away from Christ as in denied the faith? He's saying, I don't want to wait to find out. The fact that you're now drifting away from Christ, let's stop the process here and turn back to him because we don't know whether that would just be a mere season or whether it's actually demonstrating that you're not his. So now, today, if you hear his voice, turn to him. So I would say if you see a lack of spiritual growth in your life, do not dismiss that concern, but be encouraged by what we're going to find in this passage today. My friends, Christians are Christ-like. As one commentator put it, the branch is of the same nature with the stalk and the root, has the same sap and bears the same sort of fruit. The members, that's us, 
have the same kind of life with the head, and it would be strange if Christians should not be of the same temper and spirit that Christ is of when they are of his flesh and his bone, yea, are one spirit, and live so that it is not they that live, but Christ that lives in them. So this author, because he loves these people so much, is telling them that they have an expected trajectory of spiritual maturity. It's normal for a Christian to grow, and he's concerned because he doesn't see that in them. And so the next truth that he's going to teach them about spiritual maturity is that it's actually your personal responsibility. It's your personal responsibility. Now, sometimes when we think of responsibility, it's a little bit intimidating. It indicts our hearts. We kind of want to avoid responsibility. You know, what's the beneficial flip side of responsibility? I mean, if I'm given responsibility, that means I can actually act to do something to change this. I can actually respond. That's actually empowering to know I'm not actually a helpless victim, but I have responsibility here. There's something that I can act on. And so the author begins in verse 1, and he says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Therefore connects us right back to verses 11 through 14. In other words, in light of the fact that, that you ought to be growing and you are not growing, therefore now I want you to go on to maturity. Now, in the English there, you read, uh, let us, and then it sounds like leave is is kind of the main idea. They switched the, the verbal concept there in order. And so it'd be a little bit more accurate here to understand it this way. Let us therefore go on to maturity. That's the main verb. Let us therefore go on to maturity. And then the manner would be by leaving the elementary doctrine of Christ. So the main thing he's calling them to here is not leaving something, but the main thing he's calling them to here is to grow. Therefore, let us go on to maturity. And so here's this shepherd. He's not self-righteously saying, you all need to grow up. He's saying, guys, let's do this together. Let us press on. So whether you're sitting here today and you're saying, by God's grace, this has been one of the, the greatest years of my spiritual growth, or you say this has been one of the worst years of my spiritual growth, to all of us, it's let us press on. Right? It's the same instruction. It's not as though those who had a great year let off the gas, and it's not as though those who've had a bad year would say, I just don't know what to do. It's the same goal here. We are to press on to maturity. Now, this verb is amazing. It's, it's best illustrated, actually. Um, the, the way it's written is in the passive, and, and the significance of that means that you're to, you're to have this happen to you, and yet you're not the one ultimately acting. Who's the one ultimately acting? What's God at work in you, pressing you on into maturity? It's saying, let us grow, let us move on into maturity. And and this was used, if you want an illustration, in Acts 27, uh, where they're on the ship, and the ship was caught, and it couldn't face the wind, and it was being driven along by the winds. And so the way that wind would drive along a ship, it's saying, let us be driven along to maturity by God. My friends, this is not just for the spiritually elite. This is for everyone. This is for you and this is for me. And it denotes not merely a process, but actually the result that maturity is the destination. It's one of the primary purposes for which God saved you is to take you from being a rebel and make you into a worshiper. And sometimes we discount the priority of worship. 
Nor is it part of the reason why we gather every Lord's Day. Even the main reason is to worship God, to extol his praise, to sing about how great he is, to call upon his name, to read the very words that he spoke out to us. It's because we've been called by his name to the praise of his glorious grace as we sing. And so we come as worshipers, first and foremost. Everything that you do even in the Christian life is ultimately first and foremost about worship. And so you're to grow into maturity because that is growing as a worshiper. And if you're in Christ, you will grow. Romans 8, 14, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So if you belong to God, if you've been adopted into his family, then the Spirit of God is leading you into maturity. That's the idea here. So let us press on to maturity because God has already promised to do it. He's already taking us there. It's part of his plan. And yet, as that goal, that goal of Christian growth, you're actually called to pursue it. Isn't that amazing? 2 Peter 3.18, you grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a command. You're supposed to do it. It's part of God's will, Ephesians 4.15, that we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, into maturity. And so growth is a demonstration of God's work in us. Hughes says, where there is a true experience of the work of God, it is a work which precisely because it is of God cannot fail or come to nothing. In other words, he's saying if God has actually worked in someone, it's going to produce. It must. And so when you think about growth in the Christian life, think of it this way. It is natural to grow. It is normal to grow. But it's not automatic to grow. It's natural, it's normal, and it's not automatic. I was, I was thinking about it. It's like um, those, those rides, and I, I can't name the one, but you get into the little boat at the amusement park, and they give you a steering wheel, and you think you're going to get the chance to steer as you go around. And then you realize, oh man, there's a chain under us that's dragging us along, and, and this is a dummy steering wheel, right? So it's fun if you're a little kid because you think maybe you're steering, but it's not actually connected to anything. You're just getting pulled along through the ride. That's not the picture here. The picture here is that, that God is telling you, you need to grow. You need to actually take action and responsibility for your spiritual life, recognizing he is the one powerfully at work in you, and yet your role is he has given you the ability to pursue him. See, if you're spiritually dull, then this is a wake-up call. It's like when you're in a deep sleep and someone's trying to wake you up and you, you hear the alarm and you've snoozed it over and over and over, and what happens? Eventually you have to turn the alarm to a different tune or a different song because your body is trained to oversleep when you hear that particular sound. Hope I'm not the only one that's had to do that. That's the idea here. You've become dull of hearing, you're not hearing that. No, wake up, hear the alarm, understand it's a concern, and begin to pursue with diligence making progress in the faith. Let me just read a few statements that you're aware of, to remind you of how God, when he calls his people, gives them the responsibility to pursue their own sanctification. 2 Peter 1.10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Romans 8.13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Colossians 3.5, You put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? First Timothy 6.12, you fight the good fight of the faith. 
Luke 13, 24, you strive to enter through the narrow door. 1 Corinthians 9, 24, you run so that you may obtain it. 2 Peter 1, 5, you make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. My friends, this is the Christian life and it never stops. No matter how much you grow, the command is still there to keep maturing in the faith. Remember what the Apostle Paul said when he was in prison in Philippians chapter 3? Not that I've already obtained this or I have already been made perfect. Paul's saying, I'm not there yet. I'm sitting here next to the garden. I'm writing a letter about all of my joy. And you know what? Yesterday I was not joyful. Paul knows the weakness of the flesh. Man, I rejoice that Christ is preached even through the guys that are meaning me harm. But you know what? I didn't rejoice when I first heard about it. Paul says, I'm not complete. I'm not perfect, but what? I press on to make it my own. I keep striving. I wake up each day and I say, today I'm going to pursue the Lord. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Because I belong to Christ, I have that hopeful assurance that I'm going to keep persevering in the faith. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. My friends, whenever you hear a teacher who begins to diminish the role of commands and obedience in the Christian life, run far away. These are gracious words that the Lord would give us to instruct us in the Christian life. See, the gospel is good news that Jesus saves sinners and those whom he saves, he also sanctifies through their grace-enabled efforts. The gospel is the good news that Jesus saves sinners and then those whom he saves, he also sanctifies through their grace-enabled efforts. So these believers have been told to grow in their relationship specifically with the truth. And so he just lays it out for them what they're to move on from. When he says, leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, you think, that sounds kind of weird. Right? I mean, we're all concerned about Those who would say that the gospel is merely the entrance into the Christian life and then you leave it at the door and you don't need to think about it anymore? That's not what he's talking about. What he's saying here is is not laying another foundation. So you're going to picture this. We have uh, way too many houses that have been built right around ours uh, in our neighborhood there. And so we got to watch the construction process and what happens. I'll tell you, you can go test me on it, 100% of the homes in that neighborhood had a foundation poured. And 100% of those houses had a house built on the foundation. In other words, they, they weren't content to just live on a foundation. So when you think about these introductory fundamentals of the faith, you never outgrow them in the sense that you move past them or you move beyond them as if you have no need for them. Rather, the foundation is what provides stability for the whole structure. And so when you think about the gospel truths that Jesus saves sinners and reconciles them to himself through his precious blood. That is the foundation of the entire Christian life. And it's something that you never leave behind. But he's saying it would be inappropriate to just stay at the foundation. You're to actually build upon that foundation. You're to increase in your knowledge of the character of God. You're to grow in sanctification. And so when he says, I want you to to go on to maturity, I want you to reach this spiritual maturity, verse 1, by leaving the elementary doctrine of Christ, he's saying, by actually hungering for something deeper. And he gives examples here, and uh, there's 
way too many perspectives on what these are. Um, unfortunately, they all knew what he was talking about, and so we don't. We don't have a lot of information here. What we do know is that these were the fundamentals of the faith. He says, uh, don't lay again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. What's he talking about there? Well, it would seem that what he's talking about is, is not... Um, not throwing out the baby with the bathwater. So sometimes when you see a lack of growth in your life spiritually, there's a tendency to think, man, maybe there's something really significant that I missed. Maybe there's some experience that I needed to have that I didn't have. I mean, you know why higher life teaching and second work teaching and baptism of the Holy Spirit and uh, so much of the charismatic confusion is so... Um, enticing is when you're struggling in sanctification and you're failing and someone says, someone says, hey, I have an answer for you. You actually just missed something. You need the second work. Man, that's appealing. Man, that sounds good. And so what he's saying here is you don't need to rededicate your life to Jesus Christ. You don't need some new experience. You don't need to go back and get resaved. You don't need to throw your stick into the fire again. There's no point to lay a new foundation of repentance from dead works. You already turned from worshiping self to Christ. And in repentance and faith you believed, and so there's no need to lay a new foundation. goes on and says there's no need to have the instruction of washings and the laying on of hands. This is uh, instructions of washings was instructions of baptism. So at that time, you had all kinds of baptisms. You had Jewish baptisms. You had John's baptism. You had the Qumran baptism. Uh, the Jews were endlessly focused on various forms of washing and baptism. And so obviously this teacher came and brought clarity to the gospel of the true baptism, the introduction into the Christian faith. And the laying on of hands happens dozens of places throughout Scripture. We don't know exactly what's talked about here, but likely it would be the enablement of the Spirit of God. Uh, when the hands were laid on and the Spirit of God came and acts, uh, so you picture baptism and the laying on of hands kind of as your introduction into the faith. And then he says and the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. So this would be eschatology. The idea that Christ's resurrection will take place, and then our resurrection will follow in light of what he has been raised by. And eternal judgment, the condemnation for sinners, the white throne, the separation of the sheep and goats, the lake of fire. And so this author is saying, I want you to leave those things behind. You say, well, it still sounds a little bit confusing. Right? He's used milk negatively here in this context. Peter uses milk positively in 1 Peter 2.2. He says that you're to long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow with respect to salvation. So on the one hand, I'm told to drink milk like a baby. It seems like these fundamentals of the faith are really good things. They're nourishing, and yet you're telling me to leave them behind. What does this look like? Well, it's certainly not rejecting these truths. You're not rejecting the foundation of these early truths that you learned about salvation. doesn't mean that you're to ignore them or you somehow mature beyond needing to think about them or reflect upon God's work for you. It's all over throughout Scripture, God's sovereign grace to His people. So you're not rejecting, you're not ignoring, but you are to be building See, as good and as beneficial as these foundational truths are concerning Christ, as important as they are for your salvation, what the author is saying is they're insufficient by themselves to sustain your spiritual progress. 
The fundamentals are insufficient. If that's all you have are the fundamentals, it's insufficient to grow the way that God has designed you to. See, my own personal testimony, probably like many of you, was coming to Christ in salvation and beginning to learn truth and then finding, man, I'm dissatisfied. There's a lot of questions that I don't have answers for. There's a lot of doctrine I don't understand. Then God bringing this teacher and this resource and beginning to understand the attributes of God and the doctrines of grace and deeper truths and greater truths with greater clarity from Scripture. And understanding biblical sanctification and understanding what God wanted and what God provided in all areas of life. My friends, if you're in Christ, that should be your experience, that, that you knew that you came to Christ in the fundamentals, and then you found that, that you weren't satisfied with those, you were actually hungry for more. You wanted to learn more about the character of God. You wanted to learn more about what God said in all areas of life. And so it's your responsibility to grow. You're to have an ever-deepening relationship with God. You see that in appetite. You see that in discernment. If you were to think about it this way, you just ask yourself, am I growing in my love for Jesus? Do I love him more? Am I growing in my trust, what he's done for me, and his provision and his care for me? Am I growing in boldness in the truth? Am I growing in deeper convictions? Am I seeing the Spirit of God increasingly dominating areas of my character? Is God's Word informing you more than your own understanding? And when it does, are you submissive to it? What's your attitude toward learning? Are you eager? Are you eager to learn? Eager to learn about the Lord? Excited about the truth? What about your obedience and your discernment? Do you see these things progressing? My friends, if you see those things, the only one who can get the credit for it, although it's your responsibility, is God himself. So when you see the fruit, you don't boast in what you've done. You recognize that this is an indicator that God is at work in me, that I belong to Christ. And the absence of those things then, because God is the one who sanctifies, is what brings into question whether you actually are grafted into the vine, which is Christ. So let's say you're sitting here this morning and you say, you know what? I haven't been growing as I ought. I recognize that. I see apathy. I see indifference. I see unbelief. Uh, I see even hard-heartedness at times. And so as I'm hearing this sermon, I'm kind of getting together my little game plan that, that tonight I'm going to flip a switch and we're going to get back on track. I'd say just before you think about that, the author wants to remind you of something. See, he implied it in that verb in verse 1, that you're to make progress uh, in the Lord as God is empowering you. But now he makes explicit here your need for God. Verse 3 shows that spiritual maturity is your natural inability. It's your natural inability. It's kind of an awkward phrase. It just means you cannot do it. He says then finally in verse 3, and this we will do if God permits. He's saying what we will do what? We will press on. We'll move into maturity in the Christian life if God wills. 
This is not an excuse for a lack of spiritual progress. Rather, it's a reminder that the source of all spiritual benefits is God's grace through Christ. And believers grow because God grows them. My friends, if you're in Christ, it's God's will for you to be sanctified for Thessalonians 4. He promises to complete the work that he started in you, Philippians 1.6. Before you even took your first breath, he'd already predestined you to be conformed to the image of his beloved son, Romans 8.29. And so if you're in Christ, you will keep pursuing him because you belong to him. I mean, do you understand that? The whole reason why you pursue Christ and he's lovely to you at all is because God has caused you to be born again to a living hope. You can't make spiritual progress apart from divine intervention and divine enablement. I love how Tom Schreiner put it. He said, we are responsible for our spiritual growth and understanding. We should progress in faith and maturity. And yet at the same time, spiritual maturity is a gift of God. God rules over all things, and any growth in holiness results from His grace. So what does this look like practically? The Spirit of God has awakened in your heart the awareness of, of apathy. Then your response is in softness, you go to the Lord with an earnest desire. You say, Lord, here I am. Change my heart. Here I am, Lord, soften my will. Lord, renew my mind. Help my thoughts to be stayed on your thoughts. Lord, take my corrupt intentions and draw them back to line up with yours. Lord, restore the joy of my salvation like it was in the early days when I first believed. And the idea that I trusted Christ and Christ had forgiven my sins was the greatest thing that I could possibly think about. Restore that initial excitement and joy that I once knew. Lord, give me a passion for obedience. Lord, help me to want to kill sin rather than coddle it. Restore my hunger for your truth and make your word come alive to me. Psalm 119 is that kind of a prayer. I would encourage you to look at that this week as your prayer. But do you see how different of a starting point that is than self-sanctification? Do you see how different that is than hearing a sermon about being dull of hearing and thinking, all right, right now before I leave this room, I'm committing 10 sermons each week is what I'm going to listen to. And you know what? I think I need a new app I think the problem is I've had the wrong app. And if I, get a, if I get the right app, then I will be more committed to listening to all of those sermons. Or maybe you think, you know what? I make a, make a new commitment to my devotional life. And the problem is I've needed two accountability partners because the problem with one is sometimes they don't do a very good job. And so if I have two, then I will remain faithful. I think, you know what, I'm going to double down on my prayer time. And I think the missing secret is I haven't been prayer journaling. I've heard that prayer journaling is the way to go. And so maybe if I begin to journal, then I'm going to do that more faithfully. My friends, cultivating spiritual discipline is healthy. I'm not casting aspersions on any of those things as a means of practical godliness. But that's not the starting point. The source of our spiritual growth is God himself. See, we must go back to the the one who has the tonic, the great physician of your soul who can provide the remedy for your spiritual ailments. 
And how often do we spin our wheels in the Christian life trying to grow in our own strength using our own resources? How do we grow? We run the race, according to Hebrews 12.2, by looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He is the perfecter of faith. He completed the work of salvation on the cross, and he will also bring to completion his work of sanctification in our lives. See, when you grow in this way, you're responsible for it, but the, the growth ultimately always comes from God himself. And so when you see the growth, God gets the glory. He enabled it, he ordained it, he provided every resource for it. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now friend, there is an inseparable bond between God's power that he used in justifying you and that same power now as he is the source of all of your sanctification. And so what I encourage you as you reflect on this message is this. If you're in a season that you've not been growing spiritually, don't dismiss that as small and inconsequential. Don't, don't take the temptation and the bait to blame someone or something else. You actually accept responsibility for that and turn to the Lord. He will be gracious and merciful to you. And then in that, you strive by God's power to pursue Christ. If you're growing, praise the Lord and be assured that that is not because of who you are. Rather, it's the evidence that God has actually done the work of salvation in your heart. Well, this is about to crescendo, and the author is very intent because it's leading us into verse 4 where he says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt.